This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Hello and welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Mia. And I'm Scott, and we're culture scholars who believe that nerds can be obsessed with sport too. Today we'll be discussing sporting communities and the various attachments felt by its members, both participating athletes and otherwise. To do this, we're joined by special guest Nick Fogarty. Nick is a PhD candidate in the Gender and Cultural Studies Department at the University of Sydney. Nick, tell us a bit about your research. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, so, yeah, um, I guess I spend a lot of my time thinking about the relationships that develop um, across endurance sports, uh, specifically rowing and, and cycling, and how these relationships are, are very different, say, to your everyday social interactions. Um, they rely on moving with, I guess, other people uh, in often unspoken ways that are incredibly complex. And, and these kind of... Uh, knowledges and um, competencies are developed over a long period of time to the point that often there's so much going on that's unspoken that you need to have a um, you need to be incredibly informed as a part of these cultures to understand what's going on and I'm interested in how a lot of these communities you know suit men um, and they suit how I guess a lot of men choose to uh, interact with each other and, um, and communicate with each other so uh, yeah, I've, I've previously done research um, in rowing clubs as a part of my honours thesis and then for the last two years I've been uh, cycling across Sydney and uh, you know, kind of delving into um, a very different sport and a very different way of appraising athletic competency in how bodies move with each other. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your participation with these sports and your history with them? Yeah, absolutely. So um Previously, I'd spent eight years rowing, um, and one thing that shaped a large part of my honours thesis is that I spent months rowing with my research participants, and in a similar way, I've spent the last two or two and a half years cycling with my research participants. So, um, you know, often, I guess, uh, while you're doing a PhD, it's quite difficult to get the time to go out and to do research with the communities that you're studying. Whereas uh, it's been quite useful for me because I'm riding every morning um, with my research participants. You know, generally two hours every morning, often four hours each day on weekends, and that can build up to you know at least 15 to 20 hours a week of riding itself, and around two to 300 kilometers a week. So I develop, I develop, I find a certain um, or different kinds of familiarity and knowledge um, with my research participants. Not necessarily simply in how they say and. and or in what they say and, um, and I guess, aspects of their life, but how they move as well, and also how I move with them. And there's this interesting, I guess, um, enmeshment, I guess, of, of uh, how we understand each other, which is primarily through movement. Um, and so much of it is also out of our control. Because when you're cycling and bodies start to break down at the limits of your ability, there's things about yourself that... Uh, I guess, come up in a way that you don't have control of, but others around you are, are sensitive to. So, the, yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that come up when you move with your research participants, especially in quite intense ways uh, in the early morning. I mean, most mornings I get up at like 5 a.m. Um, I'll try and leave the house within 20 minutes of getting up because I value my sleep. And then I'll uh, ride out to meet um, a you know, group of cyclists that I normally ride with, um, and so we'll often meet, say, at, you know, quarter to six or six o'clock. And then depending on the day and the kind of training you're looking to do, we'll ride different, I guess, through different parts of Sydney. So we might, on a Tuesday, do the Eastern Beaches Hills route, which is, I guess, five hills varying in three to six minutes long. And the idea is, amongst the more kind of intense riders, anyway, is just to smash it on those hills and to race each other up these hills and to put people into, I guess, discomfort and, and hopefully see if some of the other riders around you are going to drop off the back. Um, it's quite fun, uh, but also quite intense. And I spent many, say, Tuesdays, for example, for the rest of the day, 
extremely regretting why I decided to, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of go that deep on some of these hills, just keeping up with my research participants. Um, yeah, so that's an average day. Um, I've, I've since actually uh, got a coach. So, um, like, uh, it's a bit more structured now, my writing, but it's also a part of my research, considering my own kind of uh, attachment to cycling and endurance sport and the intensities that underpin that. And it's similar, but also slightly different to many of my research participants. It takes a lot, I think, for people to get up every morning at five and to want to do this themselves. You know? But there's also a lot that uh, this space gives them and, and forms of, I guess, um, you know, uh, a social community, but also ways of being with others that I think both myself and many of my research, research participants find um, really wonderful. So Scott, as someone whose bedtime is closer to five AM than his wake up time, what's what's your uh, <laughs> what's your history with sports? Yeah, so I'm much less physically impressive than Nick. <laughs> um, this feels this feels like confessing some sort of sordid parts, given that anyone who knows me knows that I cannot stand cricket anymore. But I did used to play junior cricket right up until I was fifteen or sixteen, right about the time when. I was meant to segue into seniors and play with adults and stuff. And I do fondly reflect on my time playing as a kid. I do miss that community around the team. Um, we, we went through a lot together. We actually lost our coach and our captain um, a year into me participating with this club uh, in a plane accident. So, that, so yeah, so my sort of memories around this sort of practice are more about those relationships and what was actually happening on the field. Um, the following year, we only won one match all season, but it was actually the memorial match uh, in their name uh, against the other club, uh, the other team registered by this club, who actually went on to win the competition overall. So that was pretty awesome, a pretty awesome memory. Um, but yeah, so I've moved on from the game itself, though it doesn't really hold my interest anymore. To be honest, like my my engagement with sports since have kind of just stripped away any actual participation and just like taken on the relationships around the sport as a thing that I go to for. So I do understand that that pull with the relationships and stuff surrounding clubs and everything. So that was my uh, last active engagement with sport. Um, I do struggle to conceive of myself as not a sports person, though. So obviously, I'm not an athlete. Uh, Mia kind of highlighted my sleeping patterns for one. <laughs> I take immense pride in my ability to avoid all forms of physical exertion and labor. It's, <laughs> it's something I'm proud of. Um, so, can, <laughs> so can someone be a sports person without any interest in actually participating in sports? So I have no interest at all in... Uh, bowling a ball or kicking a ball or whatever ever again I have no interest in that um, but the reason I struggle to conceive of myself as not a sports person is because um, my lack of physical activity is more than matched by an over-engagement or identification with spectator cultures so mm. I'm a bit sports mad in the sense that I can quickly become obsessed with various sports so in the past I've been swept up by baseball Go Red Sox, um, Rugby League in the past, Aussie Rules, NFL, Basketball. So on top of those phases, I also legitimately support four European football teams. And by legitimately support, I mean I routinely stay up well past midnight to watch, say, my beloved Tottenham live, as well as Atletico Madrid, Borussia Dortmund in Germany, and Italy's Juventus. And this is why uh, Mia is angry at me for my sleeping patterns because that's what produces those <laughs> sleeping patterns. <laughs> I've also been a member of the Western Sydney Wanderers locally for about five years and I almost travelled to Saudi Arabia to watch them win the Asian Champions League in 20, 2014. So these supporterships feel like a really important part of who I am these days um, with a whole lot of affect going on <laughs> in the process. <laughs> wow. That's so interesting. You know, if we had more time, I'd want to, like, interview you, Scott, and talk about, like, you know, what is it that you think that these, like, this, uh, um, that this supporting these kind of teams gives you? Like, what makes you want to stay up to 2 a.m.? What are the feelings that come up, you know, when you stay up to these, like, to these times? Because, you know, often I think in my research, oh, it takes so much for someone to want to get up out of bed at 5 a.m. 
and like there's clearly things driving these needs, but I haven't necessarily thought of the, the similar intensities that clearly, um, you know, also drive, uh, you know, supporters of, uh, say, international football teams. And there's been a bit of research on that, actually, but it's not something I've considered in those terms, which is, yeah, really interesting. So can I ask you, Scott, like, why do you stay up? Well, like, what are the feelings that come up when you, you know, stay up till 2 a.m.? Yeah, so I ask myself this a lot. And my wife asks this a lot too. And my answer kind of changes from time to time. It honestly depends on the sport and the team. So I only really stay up for football these days. And a lot of it is a personal dimension. Um, back in high school, I used to be super into rugby league and super hate soccer. Um, and I had one one particular friend of mine was super into soccer. And we had always had these banter fests and stuff. But I eventually started to come around because um, in the A-League, the local Australian uh, soccer league, uh, Western Sydney Wanderers were formed and I really became enamored with the fan culture that immediately emerged around it. So this team is particularly known for um, singing the entire way through a game. Um, Lots of banter towards local teams like Sydney FC or cross-border rivals like Uh, Melbourne victory and I just got seduced by that whole experience Um, and then I learned that I mean my dad was an immigrant from England and so he's always had a sort of connection with football even though he's super into cricket as well don't get me started Um, and he revealed to me after he saw that I was uh, getting into football more that my family has a connection to Tottenham over in London Um, apparently my great-grandfather played for them at some level. I don't know which level. It was probably not first grade because I can find no proof of this, but it's one of those family myths. So, yeah, I started watching EPL uh, based on that sort of family connection. And, um, I mean, I really am fascinated by fan cultures, but in a way where I participate in it myself. So, I mean... My basis for choosing a lot of these teams is usually because they have interesting fan cultures, because of who they hate, because of the history. So I irrationally hate areas of London because of their associations with teams like Arsenal, Chelsea, West Ham, so forth. And locally, I hate Melbourne and East Sydney for similar reasons. And I really adore those sort of storied rivalries. It's quite galvanizing. Like, um... I'm I'm, so, I'm just even thinking of uh, similarly cycling clubs and even rowing clubs across Sydney. There's a certain like um, you define partially define your culture in its difference to other clubs across the city, um, and and that and that's often a source of anger and tension. But also it's it's one that um that that binds or that develops a sense of binding you to the other people that you ride with because you adopt a specific style of moving that shows that you ride with a specific club um, and, and you value these as opposed to other forms of or other ways in which clubs across Sydney would value theirs. Um, but and it's just, I, I simply feel held to or a part of these communities simply or partially by how they differ from other clubs. I guess you would call it a kind of tribalism, but I think, um, yeah, it would be, be interesting to unpack that, um, whatever that may be. It probably helps that um, in engaging with a lot of these tribalisms, we're at a point where Tottenham are probably the best I've ever been in a very long time. So I usually win those banter fests as well. Uh, So yeah, I would like to take the opportunity to say that my friend, who unfortunately has passed away, but um, uh, he was right about football in every sense of the word, being superior to rugby league. And there's that kind of personal dimension to it as well. So he passed away in a separate plane crash. I have really bad luck with friends on planes. But um, he uh, was a Western Sydney Wanderers uh, fan too. So there's also that personal dimension about going to those kind of games. He's always on my thoughts uh, when I'm um, participating in songs and stuff there as well. Uh, And there's also like family connections. Like I mentioned the Tottenham one, but also just going to Western Sydney Wanderers games with my dad particularly in the lead-up to the Asian Champions League, walking through Parramatta Park at stupidly late hours at our own personal risk, 
talking about what random foreign team we're facing this time and why we're going to lose and then coming back realizing we won and we might actually have a chance at winning this thing is probably something I would cherish as well. So there's family and friendship connections to these communities too. Yeah. That's so interesting. It reminds me of, or just thinking around like how sport is valued within the communities that we're often, you know, brought up in um, and how these valuings, which are so kind of incredible and intense, um, become deeply internalized. So I, I think of, say, Ian Thorpe for the 2000 Olympics and how, uh, say, for me, that was, um, and, and I guess Kathy Freeman as well, uh, these people were held up as gods in a way. And for an eight-year-old child to look at that and to think, oh, maybe, maybe one day I could, like, there, there, I, I could take on those parts of, of, of their greatness. You know, like there's a, I'm interested in how the way that these people are held up becomes deeply internalized by younger members of our community and how that then goes on to shape their future attachments to sporting cultures, especially men, because, you know, um, there's a, there's, a uh, terrible kind of inequity in the representation of, uh, of men over women across sport. And so it makes it seems to make sense, at least, why you've got... Um, and, but, and for many reasons, actually, because of the male-dominated history of sporting cultures, but, you know, why you've got so many men that take, you know, such personal value and meaning out of sporting cultures and continue to for the rest of their lives. Um, whereas you don't necessarily see that, that same kind of extent of, I guess, identification and resonance amongst women. That's not to say that you haven't got women that are incredible athletes or incredible, you know, kind of supporters, but there isn't, there's a, a different kind of, um, I think politics is bound up in those attachments. Yeah, so it's really interesting listening to the two of you uh, and, again, like kind of articulate those really effective relationships with sport and sport culture. Because from myself, I'm someone who has yet to understand the joy of watching sport. Um, I've tried with a bunch of different sports. I've never – I've just – it doesn't work for me. I, do, I don't get that, like, kind of excitement inside of me when I watch, like, basically any sport. Um, but I have played quite a lot, especially as a kid. Like I did like, you know, netball and soccer and athletics and karate and swimming and like basically anything you can think of. Lots of different types of dancing. Like I tried all of them and um, I've done a little bit as an adult. I'm nowhere near as fit as I used to be or would like to be. But, um, you know, I still kind of I like feeling, I guess, in touch with my body and like understanding how my body um, can move is is pretty important but I was really interested in that idea of like kind of the gender dynamics of sport which is absolutely something that exists but I've been becoming increasingly interested in the culture surrounding um, the less masculine sports so I'm thinking for example uh, the kind of funny one is Quidditch and then also roller derby and pole like these are three sports that are very queer and they're very popular with women and non-binary people. And I think that they're these interesting kind of outliers when it comes to like what we think about as dominant sporting culture. And they kind of have been brought up as this um, like kind of resisting culture almost. Yeah, so interesting. Absolutely. These are also sports that you, you need to be very invested in the way your body reacts in, in ways to other people. So like, you know, pole, you're generally almost naked. Uh, Roller derby has these really like um, tendency for people to get like quite costumed up and similar with Quidditch, actually, people like to like really go for it, especially the snitch. Um, So yeah, I find those kind of sports, again, not particularly interesting to watch, although Paul is interesting to watch. Anything that people make their bodies move in weird ways, that's probably my exception. I find that incredible because I'm like, how do your body, like, how does it work? (laughs) I didn't know humans could do this. But even with these sports that I find really interesting, I generally don't want to watch them, but I just find the culture surrounding them to be kind of almost anthropologically interesting. (laughs) I totally agree. Like, so I actually, um, oh, there's so many things I want to respond to then here. Um, So, yeah, like, absolutely. I actually, I watched, um, I spent an afternoon watching roller derby, my friend playing roller derby um, a year or so ago, and I loved it. I, I didn't know how physically intense a game it was. 
and also just how um, hard the physical contact was and the kind of risks you know we yeah athletes were taking uh, when they're like hitting each other at speed on roller skates um, and really like shoulder in some ways shoulder charging each other um, in ways that were like really good to watch but also scary um, and and you're totally right it's so interesting that these sporting we could call them sport yeah they are of course they're sports sporting cultures that are steeped in very dis- different and quite new um, you know, queer or, or um, resistant politics, very different histories to, say, old, more conventional understandings of what we might call sport, so soccer or rugby. Um, they have very different, I guess, uh, how do I say this? Um, you would call them infrastructures in a way that surround how you might follow these sports and valuings of bodies, specifically gendered valuings of bodies, I think lead to um, specific politics informing these spaces. So... You can even see it in, um, I've been doing a critical literature review of, of critical sports studies research, and so much research that just takes as its centre of view these, um, you know, what I would call ageing or maybe conventional sport cultures like, you know, soccer and football, where they're, you know, nicely kind of um, uh, marked off with the lines of the pitch, they're in some ways limited because they contain themselves within these very old ways of appreciating bodies, which are often dominated by men. Uh, and it's within, I guess, alternate movement cultures, say uh, surfing, rock climbing, or um, as you're saying, your pole dancing is really interesting, and roller derby, that you not only find alternate politics developing that are wonderful and really kind of, well, I find, refreshing, but even from the scholarship itself, there's new understandings of how bodies can move together that also trouble, I guess, conventional sporting cultures, which is so dominated by men. Um, and so you can understand, like, oh, there's actually, there are other things that are possible within these spaces that can free up not simply the bodies we value, but how bodies can express, or how people can express themselves, and how a lot of men, uh, I think, curtailed in you know, what's seen as, I guess, a, a reasonable form of, of expression, especially relating to um, expressing more vulnerable parts of yourself or, or the things that you're going through. And so not only do these, I guess, alternate and, and newly developing, I guess, sporting cultures, they, they give us, not only do they show really interesting new politics that are from, a, I think, a um, more wonderful place in a way, they also give us so much in turning a critical gaze back onto conventional sporting cultures and what it is that tacitly, I guess, frames their valuing of bodies. Yeah. And, and one thing I found really interesting when you talk about how, you know, you want to be, be in touch with your body. You want to, you know, feel yourself in specific ways. I mean, that really resonates with me. And I think it resonates with a lot of people I know who just enjoy moving, irrespective of whether it's a part of sport or not. And it's interesting how certain sporting cultures, they teach people how to value moving in specific ways. And, and that's something that sporting institutions and pedagogies that are often dominated by men are very good at doing. So I was thinking about how when you're saying that, um, you know, when you watch sport, you don't really, it doesn't resonate with you. And I think about how my father for five years took me to watch rugby games. And for those five years, I didn't really enjoy it. <laughs> it didn't really work for me. It was, um, and I just think about how there's there's a training, there's a quite intensive training that's gendered that works to, I guess, um, help, well, or may, maybe make young boys um, find ways to at least see or feel value um, within, I guess, sporting. Uh, uh, sporting spectatorship and and also you know I think about say my father and his ways of maybe expressing his emotions and so much of it was done vicariously through sport you know he couldn't necessarily speak directly to say things that were going on in his life but sport became a, a way for us to share things emotionally or, or find ways that were that were more able to I guess um, talk through things that were difficult in our lives through sport itself. So it sounds odd, but in some ways, sport is one of the few places where emotion is seen as acceptable, especially for men. And it can be quite limiting, especially if sport is the only way you have of connecting to your son.
Um, so these are kind of patrilineal, um, uh, or I guess, uh, developments of attachment um, that, that happen over generations, which is what I'm interested in, but also work to, you know, to exclude women too. Mm. So could you talk a little bit more specifically about um, the culture in cycling and those communities and, I guess, uh, how people express their interests in it? Yeah, totally. I mean, there's so much there and so much that I'm still thinking through as a part of my PhD. Um, you know, so one thing I uh, think of, I've been recently uh, teaching intro to gender studies and, and looking at, um, you know, we did a week on heteronormativity last week, uh, which is, you know, looking at, I guess, tacit ways and, and not so tacit ways, so quite, you know, um, overt logics that have very strict expectations of, you know, how men and women should um, kind of uh, be together in a way. Um, and it's interesting how in cycling, when so much of the communication is unspoken, it often becomes difficult to see how the very nature of the interactions, the way that you never touch another person while cycling, only if you crash, there's certain highly mediated ways of interacting with bodies that suit heterosexual men. Um, and in ways they've told, been told are acceptable um, forms of interbodily, I guess, uh, encounters, if that makes sense. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm spending a bit of time thinking about now, and I'm going to be interested in, in writing through further over the next year. Ways, or, or the, I, I guess, the gendered and in some ways um, sexualized forms in which bodies are controlled in how they encounter others. And so when I use the term, I guess, sexualized, I'm also kind of referring to a complete, um, in some ways, uh, or a tacit, oh, I'm struggling for the word, a, I guess, um, what you might call tacit ways of excluding the potential for homoerotic encounters, which are facilitated by the materiality of, of the bike itself in how it asks you to move with people. And, and that, that suits a certain demographic who have been told that homoerotic encounters are something you need to absolutely avoid. Um, and, but then it's also really interesting, and, you know, of course, men are not, my research, not the, like, the sole focus of my research. I'm really interested in um, you know, women who cycle, uh, and they make up a significant part of my research participants. And they have generally um, quite different stories in, in the value that cycling offers their lives currently, and also how they've come into cycling. But interestingly, all of them share, I guess, this, um, they all are very experienced in negotiating, in negotiating male-dominated work cultures and also sport cultures. So I think there's a problem, or there's often a problem when you turn up to, say, um, cycling clubs in general, in that they organise bodies in ways that they've historically organised them for a very long time which previously was solely for men. Um, and you can turn up to a cycling group now, and you'll see 30 men ready to go, some of them feeling really competitive, and, and also, you know, it's 5 a.m., so people aren't necessarily as friendly as they would otherwise be in the middle of the day. Um, and, it, and it is, I know, because I found it this way, it's really intimidating. Um, and so the women that really enjoy these spaces, I think they know how to negotiate them already. And they know how, to, in some ways, to, to deal with, with men who are, I guess, um, or are dealing with male-dominated cultures um, in a way that they, they are still able to find significant enjoyment um, across these communities. Could you go a little yeah. bit into, I guess, the more specifics of your research? Like, do you have any anecdotes to share or um, anything that can kind of articulate some of the stuff you've been talking about? Yeah, yeah. So I can... Um, Maybe I, I'll, um, I'll preface this by saying that because I'm in the middle of my research, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm really interested in talking about specific moments, but I'm also, I'm also, I guess, working to make sure that I'm protecting my research participants. So hopefully I won't be any, say anything that would, um, even though all of my research participants are de-identified, because our communities know each other so well, I've got to make sure that I don't, you know, um, uh, inadvertently reveal someone. Um, but so what, one thing I can talk to is I'm reminded about this uh, Wednesday ride we used to do, um, which was back from La Perouse. 
Uh, and so La Perouse is a part of, I guess, um, it's like a uh, part of the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And um, on the way back, it became this drop ride where the idea was that you know, people would get on the front of the group and they would work themselves as hard as they could, hoping that they might be able to drop people who were at the back, who were struggling to keep up. Um, and often you've got, well, at least the club that I was doing research with, they were incredibly conscious about safety because um, they've had people terribly hurt when riding, being hit by cars, hit by buses. And the thought of a no-drop ride was something that was quite hair-raising, both for the committee but also for many of us who were on the ride and were trying to get around buses at speed, getting up to like 60, 70 k an hour, going back you know, towards the city. And um, I remember being at the back of this group and when people are afraid and they're at the limits of their ability, that's when you have these things that just come up out of people. I remember one person who was at the back who in some ways had designated himself as, as being responsible for the safety of the group and he was just screaming. He was screaming because we were trying to change lane uh, and there was a bus in front of us uh, and we were going far faster than the bus. So, And then you've also got people at the front who are you know, determined to try and drop people. So they're not necessarily conscious of the danger they're putting all of us in. In that, you know, there are different, I guess, intentions that are driving um, this group of us that are riding together. And uh, I remember this guy who was trying to pull us over and was just screaming. I think he was saying something like, he was just saying like, you know, um, over, over, trying to get us across and making sure no one got hit by a car while, you know, say eight of us moved over. Um... And then hoping the bus didn't pull out as well. But it wasn't simply like a... It was a scream that was kind of out of control. Where you can feel the bent up nerves, anger and stress that, you know, like a, that speak to him like clutching onto his handlebars. You know, there's like a certain loss of uh, composure that comes up when you're riding with people, which is really interesting. Um, and it, it also speaks to the, uh, to the adrenaline that is so much a part of what people get from cycling is that you're taking these risks and you're taking these risks with other people and sometimes they can go so terribly wrong but other times they work out really well and you get to share these moments with other people. Hmm. So what happens when things do go wrong? Like how is this kind of negotiated between the members of the group? It's pretty interesting. Um, So whenever things do go wrong, I'm surprised there isn't as much anger as I would expect. I, I, there was one um, crash that I, um, was a part of my group when we were doing a Four Gorges ride, which is going, I guess, to the north of Sydney, and, and there's these large, well, in Sydney we call them large 10-minute hills that we would do four times. And um, it was a wonderful ride. It was smooth and it was beautiful because everyone was, I don't know, there was a, there's a smoothness to the ride where the Ks are just clicking by and it's challenging, but... The, the riders that I was with were very experienced and it was just moving in a way that felt effortless and there was this flow. But what happened was we were on the shoulder of the highway and some of the riders didn't see a large metal protective barrier and they just ran straight into it at about maybe 35k an hour. Um, and this one guy smacked right into it and then um, kind of surfed along the top of this metal ridge on his chest. And it was just lucky because this guy is an incredible athlete. But um, and if it was any of any of us, anybody else in that group, I'm sure they would have broken their sternum. But he was such an like a strong athlete that he just had this terrible gash across his chest. And it was interesting going from this kind of wonderful, smooth, effortless feeling across the group to then just shrieks and freaking out and people screaming. Um, and then suddenly everyone, you know, people like kind of um, quickly reaching their, for their phones and trying to call an ambulance, not yet knowing if they were okay. And, and I guess you have... Um, things can really quickly go wrong. And often you don't quite understand or remember how hard the road is and how badly someone can hurt themselves. So you, you move from these really calm ways of being with others to suddenly yeah, shrieks, it's maybe terror in some ways, that um, can stay with you for a long time. Um, I, I got hit by a car uh, three months ago uh, in, in a way that I was very lucky to. 
um, because I didn't, I should have ended up in emergency, but that didn't happen. And even now, um, when I go back along that road, um, it's really hard because I remember just how how close I was kind of to um, to being really badly hurt in a way that I couldn't recover from. So it, it's, um, yeah, things can go terribly long, wrong. And a lot of cyclists are in denial about how bad they can, they can be. God, this is like, <laughs> this is stressing me out listening to it, but like in a really interesting way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thinking about, um, I guess, leading on from some of these social dynamics that you're talking about, Nick, um, can you tell us a bit more about that um, when it comes to off the bike and also like a bit about the demographics of your study? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, and, and this might... This might work well together. Um, so I'm thinking about how after every ride, generally it's it's convention that people go and get coffee together, uh, which which speaks so much to in many ways the kind of class demographics that enjoy cycling. So it's really common to after say riding in the eastern suburbs or um, or yeah or anywhere across Sydney to go and get a coffee, but to also get a coffee in Surrey Hills in Sydney, and and that speaks to a lot of things. It speaks to not simply the the class demographic that currently enjoys cycling, but also the infrastructures that are amenable to cyclists across Sydney, which historically are those that, I guess, um, or suburbs that were more affluent over the past, you know, 150 years. Um, yeah, and, and, and that's interesting because you have a different kind of interaction, uh, say, at coffee, than you do riding. But um, it's in many ways, it depends on the ride itself. So there's a familiarity that you have in getting coffee with someone after riding with them for an hour and a half that you wouldn't otherwise have. You know, often, um, well, things are never really stilted at your coffee after because you've just spent an hour and a half moving with someone in Lycra. So <laughs> you find that the conversation flows, it comes easy, and you're chatting to people that you would never have met otherwise and, um, and also would feel maybe slightly uncomfortable in just chatting to so openly um, if you hadn't already been on a ride together. Um, yeah, and, and so when talking about the demographic of cycling itself, in the last 10 years, it's exploded, which is something I'm interested in and, and I'm, I'm currently finding difficult to completely explain. But the numbers have just exploded of middle-aged men, really, in Lycra. So like one, one of the classic terms is a mammal. And an example is that a lot of cycling clubs across Sydney have gone from having numbers of, say, maybe 60 members in 2008 to now having 400. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and even that 400, uh, they're the active members. Over the past three years, they've had at least seven or 800 members go through the club. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily mean... Well, so you've got a, a large core group of riders, but you've also got many people around it that are also participating in cycling. And that doesn't even capture the numbers who aren't affiliated with these club infrastructures or ways of organising bodies. And so there's been this massive explosion of people participating in cycling, um, which not simply just across Sydney, but kind of you know across many parts of the Western world, um, which is something I am still working out to explain well and properly. Um, but it does seem to... It absolutely complements a kind of... Generally, at least, this isn't um, at all uh, the same for everyone, but so many of people that are getting involved in cycling now are from white labour, you know, professional workforces with uh, flexibility, in, um, at least in how they work, and also with their family lives. Um, so in a lot of my research participants, you know, they can turn up to work at 9, maybe 9.30, so they can go for a ride, they happen to work within the city or within, um, you know, suburbs surrounding the city. So they can go for a ride, they can get a coffee, and they're not too worried about getting to work, you know, at 9 or 9.30. It's very different to someone who maybe might be in the western suburbs of Sydney who's got to commute an hour and a half to get into work. Um, and, and that kind of time, um, you know, would be replaced by at least the people I ride with, with cycling, if that makes sense. So there's already a very classed and, I guess... Um, geographically um, situated form of, I guess, of, of who's allowed or who's cap or, or 
um, able to get involved in these cultures and it's bound up in where you live across Sydney, which is very much a classed, um, I guess, uh, segmentation of, uh, of people, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, but that's not to say, you know, like there are plenty of, of tradies that I ride with, you know, um, but even then, like, it's, um, you know, they still live within a certain part of Sydney that, that shows a, a, a kind of affluency. Um, and I found it quite difficult. If, one thing that helps me with my research is that I have a flexibility with time, so I can be there for coffee and I can, you know, I can take part in these cultures, but I also don't have much money. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something that's been really difficult, is uh, so much of how you gauge someone's athletic ability on a bike is to do with... Um, whether they show themselves to be clued in to um, forms of knowledges that are associated with consumption. And the kinds of bike, lycra, helmet, sunglasses and shoes that would denote your ability um, and, and, I guess, experience. So it sounds really odd, but um, how I would gauge someone's, I guess, experience on a bike is often simply by what they're wearing because it shows that they're clued into a specific scene across Sydney. They know how to signal to others that they are an experienced rider simply of being, I guess, a part of a, a culture for an extended period of time and knowing which forms of, a, I guess, of consumption in, in what they wear denotes experience. So people, a lot of riders that are you know, getting into cycling are dismissed quite quickly because they clearly have no idea how they need to, I guess, aesthetically present themselves to others. Simply by what they're wearing, you can immediately tell that they have no idea what they're doing on a bike. Um, and that's something I'm interested in exploring more, is how consumption is such an important part of cycling culture in a way that it was, just didn't happen in rowing, which I've you know, previously experienced with. In rowing, it was about the shape of your body. It was about how your body spoke to a latent athleticism that would be intimidating to your rivals. In cycling, there's so many different kinds of bodies that it's harder to gauge how fit someone is. So it's, they do it instead through what they wear and how much money, in many ways, is bound up in what they're wearing. Or, or what they're wearing signifies, I guess, um, affluency. And so... <laughs> So much of my research is, um, well, many, there are many encounters where people like, are saying to me, like, why are you riding that bike? That, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't say this directly, but what they are saying is like that piece of shit bike is slowing <laughs> you down, you know? Um, and I've had to be quite careful in finding ways to, you know, to get equipment that allows me to still hopefully go fast but doesn't um, in any way cost the same amount as some of my research participants would be spending because I just can't. Um, but I still have found myself getting swept up in wanting to signal to others that, yes, I know what I'm doing. Yes, I'm a competent rider and I can probably beat you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Even though there are so many, I'm, I'm not that great across Sydney, but it's something I aspire to be, a, you know, a better cyclist and a better athlete. Yeah, so I, this is what's really interesting about your research um, in terms of like, I mean, all ethnographers walk that really kind of careful line of how much do you participate um, in what you're actually studying. And it's so essential with what you're doing um, to be actually in it in ways that I guess with many ethnographic studies would be quite unethical and not really possible or would like (laughs) so deeply influence the research that it's just kind of you just don't do it. But it's kind of the opposite with your research. So can you talk a little bit about um, what it's like being a part of your study uh, and also like researching a community that you're an active member of. Absolutely. So it's something I've got to be so careful with. Um, and I've found that since I've concluded my participant observation, I've developed into a very different kind of writer simply because I'm no longer bound to the, like, to, um, the role that was required of me as a, as a you know, researcher in the field. So... Um, you know, when I was taking my notes, I was so concerned that, you know, kind of latent um, motivations and competitive motivations that I had would seep into the research. And of course it does. It's really important. And in many ways, um, I think a lot of the reasons that, um, you know, I'm accepted into these communities because I also, I want to be there. There's, um, there are needs that I have 
and a, a certain authenticity that I um, that I bring to to say writing with others that isn't simply like oh I just want to observe what you do and I'm going to hang back. It's like well no I'm I'm actually also I'm really invested in what's going on here, and and then that gets tricky because it's like okay well um, how are my own kind of attachments to this movement present? And I, and I think it's important here you know sometimes I talk to to you know science students and they're like but this is this is an objective. What's you know that? like how how do you cater for bias? And it's like, well, um, well we can do that. And, and it's just a, a part of a, a daily point of reflection on how my own kind of, um, you know, enjoyment of cycling is um, bound up in the practice of being with my research participants. And I think it's important to acknowledge that whenever we're doing research, we have our own motivations that are driving that interest. Uh, especially when you're a field researcher, of course, you being there is going to influence what's going on. Of course it is. And so... Um, you know, there, there's ways of riding with people where there's no way you could be like, I don't know, this objective researcher who just sits off the back and like, um, you know, like just observes everything that's going on. Because if you sit off the back, you're putting everyone in danger. It shows that you have no idea what you're doing, you know. Um, so it was more about being able to hopefully to seamlessly work within this group Um and still, but still being conscious of what it was that, for the reasons that I was there, what were the reasons that I was there, and being able to, I guess, um, pay, hopefully, quite a, an attentive, um, or not necessarily be hyper-aware, but have um, a sensitivity to my research participants when I was riding with them. So the goal was to seamlessly ride with them and work with them, um, so that I could become sensitive to a lot of things that are unspoken and shared within these cultures, where if you were, say, just to do interviews or to ride with them once, you would just have no idea about. So it was about becoming inculcated within that culture. And I found, actually, when I stopped the distant observation component of my research, my cycling changed a bit, and that the impulses I had to, when I was riding with these people dramatically changed. And I was a, a bit more free to pursue what I wanted to pursue within that space. Um, which might have meant, you know, attacking on a hill and putting people in difficulty when previously I would be more interested in what others wanted to do. Um, it, it just changed how I moved with my research participants. Does, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thinking about what Nick's been talking about, uh, Scott, you're obviously coming at this from a very different angle as someone who's more of a spectator of sport and is more involved in the kind of communities surrounding the sport culture rather than necessarily being the actual active participate participants of um, the sport itself. Uh, but it's obviously still a very effective uh, relationship that people have as spectators and being a part of these communities. And, you know, we, we've still got these kind of relationships that are very interesting. So I was just wondering if you had any... Um, comments from your own perspective uh, on some of the stuff we've been talking about. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the kind of social dynamics and uh, the feeling of being member to what I would call an imagined community, uh, both in respect to um, imagined community. I, I would call it that. It's not my term. It's Benedict Anderson's term. So that means a uh, um, those feelings of connection and belonging to like geographically dispersed uh, communities that you would otherwise have no connection with or have no real actual reason for feeling connected to. So the Australian community, why would I feel connected to someone living in Perth? But we do feel that connection because we feel like Aust Australians. So the ways in which that those connections are fostered. And I do think that at a micro level, but also at a, at a transnational level occurs with uh, spectatorship with sports. So uh, in thinking through the more local example, the Western Sydney Wanderers, I do feel a part of an imagined community, I feel a part of belonging to uh, something with other people that I would otherwise have no association with whatsoever, for no other reason would have association with. But there is that weird sensation of walking down, uh, quotation marks, East Sydney um, and seeing Western Sydney Wanderers stickers all over lampposts and stuff because there was a recent derby and we've been tagging our territory in Sydney FC's terrain. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I see them everywhere and vice versa happens with um, uh, the Smurf Brigade down in Parramatta as well. Um, and just these weird sort of interactions with people when I'm out wearing one of my jerseys and someone else recognizes it, nods at me. We have a weird conversation that we would otherwise not have about our chances and how bad we are or how good we are or how bad our enemies are. Um, these weird sort of emergent moments, but it does feel like you're part of something there. And that was most pronounced for me when Western Sydney Wanderers were going through the Asian Champions League, which was such a ridiculous thing to happen. This competition, which is like the Asian equivalent of the European one, which is the biggest competition in the world featuring the best teams in the world. Um, Australian teams are ants compared to some of the clubs participating in that competition, particularly some of the Chinese and Saudi Arabian teams that have so much more money and so much more history. I mean, Western Sydney Wanderers were established in 2012. Uh, they are a baby. Um, and they still somehow got past all these rich, wealthy teams from Japan, South Korea, and, and Saudi Arabia, and China. Um, and it was just fascinating to see the way in which we were reported about in foreign media. I think one of the biggest newspapers in Saudi Arabia compared us to Chelsea, which is ridiculous considering the gap of wealth between the two of us. But that's the kind of style in which the Wanderers played at the time. That's sort of super defensive, um, just ruined any kind of sense of beautiful football, lump it up forward and hope for the best kind of deal. And it worked and I don't care because we came home with a trophy. <laughs> um, but that sort of tapped into those feelings of a battler, uh, mentality, which uh, here in Australia is very important in terms of how we uh, often characterize ourselves in other situations like with the Anzacs and stuff or just in uh, existing in this often harsh environment um, in the Southern Hemisphere. So there was a lot of like sort of nationalism fil filtering into that. It was really interesting to see how how those feelings of being under the spotlight um, and being the center of attention felt. But I have these weird experiences as well with Tottenham. So obviously I'm on the other side of the world to London, um, but I still feel like I have a, a fingerprint, like a thumb on the pulse of that community, largely because of things like the internet and like social media, which if we go back to Anderson's term about Imagine Communities, he put a lot of emphasis on uh, nationally circulated newspapers creating this feeling of belonging um, well, social media and internet would be such a significant thing for that now. And that creates these transnational uh, con connections. Um, and I had some very strange experiences when I was doing field work in Israel and the occupied territories because Tottenham has a reputation of being the Jewish club in the English Premier League. Um, so I would be wearing my jersey over there and a lot of Israelis would be coming up to me assuming A, that I was Jewish, which I'm not, uh, and B, like, that was just the reason to have a conversation with a random stranger is this signifier that I had draped over myself, which is very fascinating to me. But on the flip side, when I went across the green line, which is the internized, uh, internationally recognized line of where Palestine begins and Israel ends kind of deal, um, with Palestinians, it also triggered a lot of conversations about just general football chat. So I'd be sitting next to a demolished house um, and one of the Palestinian workers would come up to me and talk about how at the time uh, Spurs' most uh, valuable player was uh, tagged to go to Real Madrid for a world record-breaking transfer fee. I'm like, this is really strange. Uh, in this seemingly extreme situation, these kind of signifiers still draw out these, these imagined communities, these kind of feelings of connection to each other when we have we don't even know each other's names <laughs> it's interesting the way in which you describe uh how the body figures in your research nick because i do find that sort of sensibility about um awareness of each other's bodies uh in spectator culture so western sydney wanderers is notable within an australian context because it's one of the few clubs that has a really strong active supportership so these are the kind of fans who sing a lot, create their own chants, bring bring instruments to to games to create a musical vibe. Uh, they, they, they're very well organized, a whole community events, so on and so forth. And a lot of what makes 
um, Western Sydney Wanderers active supportership notable with the Red and Black block is because they sing and dance throughout the entire uh, 90 minutes or whatever. Um, and so singing and dancing, all very choreographed, all moving as one kind of deal. But there's also those marches before the game which is kind of like a intimidation <laughs> tactic toward the other uh fans uh they usually do it um when we're away in the central coast and away in newcastle because those fan bases uh tend to be smaller than ours so they would march in a great collective group towards the stadium it's all about <laughs> proving that we are um a more supported club, more popular, a bigger deal, a real football club. Um, but that, again, has the, the sort of body inter- bodily interactions, these sort of strange situations where uh, body interactions that would not normally happen do happen. Um, and it was very fascinating uh, when they were in the Asian Champions League, their winning year, and seeing all these foreign teams come with large um tourist fans as well so when we faced al halal uh in the final the saudi arabian team and the blue wave supporters came here and they had their own choreography uh in the stands and it was very impressive um and then the flip side guanchao evergrande the team from china who are easily the richest club in east asia um were there was this strange moment where I was actually sitting among most of the away fans um, at Parramatta Stadium at the time, and then the RBB got going, and literally it felt like all the Chinese fans around us jumped at the sound. <laughs> There's this weird sort of uh, collectiveness to the body, sensations of body. <laughs> Even though this team is like massive and popular for some reason, a pint-sized group of loud Australians may managed to make them more jump. Like they weren't expecting to hear that kind of level of sound within this shack of a stadium than what they're used to kind of deal. So there's really interesting sort of vibrations between bodies and stuff as well in terms of the spectator culture surrounding that club. Um, it even makes me think about like, you know, how often sport, at least soccer um, and at least across Australia is, is advertised as like we overcome difference with soccer, you know? Yeah. Um, like one language, soccer. <laughs> and, it, you know, it sounds like, well, actually, it seems to entrench difference, even though these these differences are, you know, um, are, yeah, I think what you'd say are imagined. Like, it's, it's kind of amazing how, how it um, galvanizes people to, um, to maybe associate with each other or feel connected around this narrative. Um, that then, I guess, paints them in opposition or positions them in opposition to, um, you know, like a, an, a, an opponent's um, team. It's um, kind of scary. <laughs> kind of kind of scary and, and, and how effective it is at mobilizing bodies, but also mobilizing, you know, quite um, palpable forms of emotion that um, at least, and I think this is probably why, you know, I'm, I'm showing that I'm not necessarily a soccer, like a massive football fan, um, because, you know, often, like, you only hear about it when it, things get out of control. You don't hear about, you know, what was a really nice um, story you were just saying, Scott, about how, like, there, there are actually these really positive feelings that can, can come up when you're, you're you, you know, you're um, a part of this supportive crowd, I guess, and feeling kind of connected in how you move together and chant together. Often you only hear about, like, at least in the news, about how someone lit a flare at this football uh, match, and then it like turned into terrible kind of chaos and fighting. Um, you miss out on yeah, you know what's kind of um, what sounds really potentially wonderful about um, yeah feeling I guess invested in a team, being able to share that investment with others. But and also how you know what at least my understanding is that these investments are um, are so gendered, are so incredibly gendered. Um, and, and I think, I think at least, um, are partially connected to legitimate forms of emotional expression for men. Uh, it's talking very generally, but uh, yeah, it seems like a, a form of like um, of emotional investment that I, I can't see being um, legitimate outside of that space in, in many areas in a lot of men's lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, that, that, that's something that... Um, or an explanation that I'd reach for. Okay. I think uh, we've successfully 
shown that nerds can be deeply invested in sport over the last hour or so. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we we might leave it there. Um, Nick, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your research. I think it's been really interesting to see um, how the three of us have such different relationships with sport and sporting culture. And I think your insights um, from your own work really highlight the ways that our otherwise pretty disparate perspectives are are joined in many ways so thank you oh no thanks so much i've had such a nice time being here thank you you can find nick on twitter we'll put a link in the description if you're a fan of trope watchers check out our sister podcast a clash of critics your scholarly podcast about game of thrones and a song of ice and fire if you enjoyed this episode please rate us on itunes it helps others find our podcast you can find this episode and all future episodes on itunes and stitcher Also check out our website, www.tropewatches.com, for all episodes, extra content, or to download an RSS feed. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash tropewatches. And you can tweet at us or follow us on Instagram at tropewatches. You can also email us at tropewatches at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Scott. And I'm Mia, and we are your Tropewatches. Watches.